Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and as all seven of our regular listeners know, we have a simulation program that goes hand-in-hand with this podcast. In fact, it predates it for some eight years or so. And the other day, I was looking through our various files and presentations, and I found this presentation on massive hemorrhage, which I recorded back in 2019. So this presentation deals with how we need to handle massive hemorrhage a little bit differently in rural remote settings as opposed to larger tertiary care centers. And I also talk about some of the stark realities of medical transport and specifically how it's not the Hail Mary be-all end-all of handing your patient over. In fact, there's a lot of optimization we really need to do before that ambulance or helicopter takes them away. Anyway, I've taken that video lecture and I've managed to strip out the audio track so that I can present it here. You're welcome to listen to it right now, or if you're nearby a computer, you're welcome to go to the show notes at podcast.rnrrounds.ca, where you'll find a link to the actual video file with slides, which you can watch on Vimeo if you prefer. All right, on with the show. Hey gang, today let's talk about the management of massive hemorrhage in rural and remote locations. The take home from this presentation is that when it comes to massive hemorrhage, time kills. In most of the 25 or so Canadian rural facilities that I've worked in, if blood is available on site, generally there are four to six units total of O positive and O negative, and perhaps a few units of FFP. Due to the short shelf life or expense, rural centers generally do not have platelets or cryoprecipitate. The time to receive blood from the regional blood bank depends entirely on the location, but in my experience, even for semi-rural hospitals just 20 minutes from a blood bank, it takes a minimum of four hours for cross-match products to arrive. For more remote centers, it can take 8 to 12 to even 24 or more hours. That means even if you're lucky enough to have some blood on site, a massive transfusion protocol is not an option. This sample urban protocol, which supports the latest thinking of a 1 to 1 to 1 transfusion ratio, that's one unit of packed red cells to one unit of fresh frozen plasma to one unit of platelets, is impossible in most rural hospitals right out of the gate. As soon as this protocol is activated, the urban department has immediate access to more blood products than the entire rural blood bank. And that's just the first iteration of the protocol. Massive hemorrhage is defined in many nightmare-inducing ways, but here are five of the scariest. Bleeding more than 150 milliliters per minute, half of the total blood volume being replaced in three hours or the entire blood volume being replaced in 24 hours, and so on. Massive bleeding is difficult to manage no matter where you are, but it carries an especially high mortality when the patient is starting out in a blood-limited hospital situation. So what is the rural doctor to do? A common knee-jerk reaction is to hit the panic button and focus on getting the patient out ASAP to a regional blood bank. In Canada, we're fortunate every province and territory has some sort of advanced patient care transport service. The quality and expediency of each is variable though, depending on what company you're calling and from where. So is rapid transport the real solution though? Most systems don't carry blood by default, so what they really offer above and beyond your emergency department is expedited access to definitive care. But how quick is that access really? Specific times are highly variable, again, depending on your transport company and your location, but let's work through an example that can be extrapolated to most rural or remote communities. Respecting the fact that administrators of hospital networks or transport companies don't appreciate their skeletons being put on display, let's use my favorite hypothetical rural hospital 
in Fort St. Nowhere, Canada. FSN has two referral centers. Little Cube provides tertiary care and is 140 kilometers away. Greater Smokington offers quaternary care and is 220 kilometers. Now let's put that in terms that every Canadian can appreciate, private drive time. Let's also look at ground ambulance time with a Fort St. Nowhere crew to either destination. Now what's this you say? Ambulances go faster than private vehicles and they have lights and sirens. Why are their transport times longer? And the explanation, my lead-footed friends, is that the estimates of average drivers like you and I and the transport docs on the phone is atrocious. Just like patients recalling how long they had to wait to see a doctor, drivers have terrible memories when it comes to actual travel time. And in our guesstimates, just like the smartphone map software estimates we use, we only consider optimal driving conditions and fail to take into account minor details like traffic jams, road construction, adverse weather, mechanical issues, and so on. Ambulance stats, on the other hand, are real-world averages calculated by unbiased GPS and computer data. And those are the real numbers and are far more realistic than our personal faulty memories and lead feet. Ambulances are also generally not driven like Maseratis. Similarly, here are the real numbers for air ambulance. Notice how Big Hero Helicopters doesn't even offer an option to fly patients to Little Cube Hospital. This is often the way with transport company policies and logistics. Notice also that the flight time to Smokington is longer than driving in your Audi R8. That's because the helicopter is generally based in Smokington and not in Fort St. Nowhere. We'll go over all this in more detail in our transport block, but for now, let's remember that this presentation is about patients who are hemorrhaging to death. Best case scenario on this slide is 100 minutes to Little Cube's blood bank. But this isn't the entire transport picture. Let's not forget that when you make the decision to transport, the ambulance doesn't magically roll out of your hospital with the bleeding patient on board that moment. You have to call to get approval, which generally means finding a receiving physician, which generally means telling the story at least three times to different parties. How long it takes really depends on the province or territory you're in, but best case to get approval for the ambulance to arrive is 30 minutes. Occasionally a little less time, but frequently much more. Remember also the little detail of handing over to the transport crew and the crew getting the patient loaded and switched to their equipment, including monitors, pumps, ventilators, and so on. At the end of the day, total transport time from Fort St. Nowhere to Little Cube is 145 minutes. I'm feeling benevolent, and so I've only assigned the minimum approval time and load time in this case. Both the ambulance and the helicopter were fueled and ready to go when the call came in. Total time to Smokington General, on the other hand, is 195 minutes. Again, minimal time to approval, but helicopters always take longer to load and go, and so I've assigned a realistic minimum of 30 minutes on the ground at Fort St. Nowhere prior to the return leg. Back to our hemorrhaging patient. You're the doctor, and you're on the ball, and you recognize immediately that this patient is hemorrhaging. In the next 30 seconds, you call for another doctor to assist with lines, and if the patient deteriorates, you order two large bore IVs, oxygen and monitors, and you call for all four units of blood in the building, and you pick up the phone and you call the transport number. You know your town and how to expedite transport to the closest blood bank and definitive care. These are optimal conditions we're talking about. Let's flip this around now and look at this from the patient's perspective. The doctor has done everything in record time. The transport team is also immediately available and knows how to minimize the transport times involved. Nevertheless, if it's a ground ambulance to Little Cube, it's still two hours and 25 minutes of hemorrhaging 
prior to arriving. Air ambulance is even worse for you at 3 hours and 15 minutes. Transport is oh so necessary, but it's not the magic life-saving bullet that we really want it to be. So massive bleeding is the old metaphor of a train speeding towards a cliff. With four units of blood in-house, you can add perhaps four more rail ties to this track, but it's not enough to offset the hours required to transport the patient to the blood bank in definitive care. You have to slow the train down. You must control the bleed. A massive transfusion protocol would potentially extend the remaining track, but that's not an option for us in rural facilities, so we have to focus on slowing this runaway train down. Everyone knows ATLS, and ATLS is okay, but it tends to provide a very cursory approach to trauma. In my experience, I also find that it tends to be a bit dated in its recommendations. I think every rural doc should take ATLS once because it is currently still used as a yardstick in Canada, but my experience is that refresher courses have limited utility, and I would personally be happier if ATLS were named ITLS, an introduction to trauma, a starting point and a common frame of reference. For those that have done ATLS at least once and are looking for a refresher or a bit more information, I recommend a European course that originates from the UK. It too has a regrettable name, in my opinion, as anesthesia has very little to do with this course. Names aside, ATACC offers a free ebook which is a fantastic read and I feel has much more relevance to rural or remote medicine as compared to the much more tertiary-centric ATLS manual. Let's have a quick look at one of the differences between these programs. Everyone in their dog is familiar with the ABC acronym in emergency medicine, and this is frequently modified and added onto. I've encountered ABCDEFG and doctors ABCD and so on for various differing contexts. There are so many variants of the ABCs now, it can become confusing to remember the nuances of each application, thus defeating the purpose of a tailored mnemonic in the first place. While ABC remains a useful reference point when communicating with others, science is also demonstrating in more and more cases that ABC is more about convenience than anything else. Consider, for example, the profound reordering of ABC in cardiac arrest to now CAB. MARCH, on the other hand, is a novel acronym which is unique enough that it becomes harder to confuse with the other ABC variants. MARCH stands for Massive External Hemorrhage Control, Airway Management, Respiratory Management, Circulatory Management, and Head Trauma and Other Serious Injuries. Prioritization of major bleeding is critical to successful trauma resuscitation in a rural emergency department. And yes, it's true there are other competing priorities. For example, respiratory failure cannot wait very long either. However, I think the ATACC has chosen this modification of sequence to avoid the situation where, for example, an occasional intubator recognizes at step A in the ABCs the need for a definitive airway control. Since A is the first step in ABC, intubation becomes the top priority subconsciously and then minutes upon minutes are lost to preparation, planning, selection of drugs, and everything else that goes into an intense and rarely performed RSI. Meanwhile, precious blood is hemorrhaging out of the patient, never to be recovered, and that blood could have been retained if we'd only invested a few seconds, perhaps up to one minute at the outset. All of this is in an effort to secure an airway which, yes, may have needed to be intubated prior to transport, but was not actually the gravest threat to life. 
March reminds us to consider massive bleeding prior to getting lost in the other minutiae of resuscitation. Not that tunnel vision has ever affected superhumans such as you or I. Again though, without a blood bank and trauma surgeon, we just don't have the capacity to lengthen the track, let alone bridge the gap to long-term recovery in a resource-limited environment such as a rural hospital. Our top priority in hemorrhagic trauma therefore needs to be circulatory preservation. That is, we aim to preserve circulation rather than replace it. Think about that statement for a moment. As rural docs, what can we do and how can we prioritize circulatory preservation? Now I am all about low-hanging fruit and the lowest hanging fruit on the road to preserving blood volume is controlling external hemorrhage. ATACC coined the mnemonic, did it, which is simply the steps you follow until external bleeding is controlled. It should take less than 60 seconds to complete. Direct pressure, more direct pressure, indirect pressure, that is vessel compression, and tourniquet. These four did it steps are what the massive hemorrhage control step refers to in the March mnemonic. However, there's some other low-hanging fruit to be grabbed, and the earlier the better. Minimize the potential for further internal blood loss by stabilizing pelvic fractures with a bedsheet or commercial binder. Remember to give TXA early. TXA is contraindicated if given more than three hours after the trauma. Reverse anticoagulation even if it means giving vitamin K to someone on warfarin. When you're bleeding out, every little bit helps. Keep the patient warm. Hypothermia is one of the sides of the triad of death, the others being acidosis and coagulopathy. Similarly, target minimum normal tension and thus walk the line between staving off metabolic acidosis but not blowing out clots or diluting endogenous clotting factors further. Transfuse them if you've got them. And lastly, damage control surgery. Damage control surgery is a 21st century technique in trauma management that comes from the military. A surgeon will open a patient with internal bleeding, control that bleeding, pack the patient, and then ship them open to definitive surgical care. The goal here is to help restore normal physiology, not normal anatomy. And the plan is to return later for definitive treatment. Although there are no randomized controlled trials, DCS has become the standard for trauma surgery in much of the world and as mentioned is utilized by the military. A forward operating base like a rural hospital may receive the casualty, perform DCS as part of its stabilization process, then transfer that patient on to definitive military care at a base hospital. The same concept could be applied by rural hospitals in Canada with surgical capabilities, but in 2019, to the best of my knowledge, it is not formally accepted anywhere yet. Nevertheless, if you're managing a hemorrhagic trauma in a rural hospital with surgical facilities, it would be rather silly not to request surgical support. On a case-by-case -case basis, some rural ORs may still take your patient to surgery for further stabilization prior to transport. Okay, time to bring this thing in for a landing. In summary, major bleeding is a major problem in trauma resuscitation, particularly rural trauma resuscitation. Crystalloid replacement is no longer an acceptable strategy and circulatory preservation must take priority given the limited replacement options we have in rural and remote communities. March is a modern approach to early trauma management that is well suited to the rural emergency department and is worth thinking about further. Remember to did it, external bleeding, and then cherry pick other hemorrhage related low hanging fruit early on. 
This can include early transexamic acid, stabilizing fractures, cranking the thermostat, maintaining minimum normal tension, and replacing blood if you have access. Thanks for your attention. The r Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by me, Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Dr. Abir Islam. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca. Thank you.